Good afternoon. Today is Thursday, May 14th, 2020. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman of the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? Hey. What's up, what's up? How you doing today? I'm doing okay. You know, happy to be here. It's a good day so far. And I'm also here with Elon Mandel. How are you doing today, Elon? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you, though. <laughs> Cool. And I'm very excited today. We have one of the dopest professors in the country, Dr. Sophia Umoja Noble. She is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, in the Department of Information Studies, where she serves as the co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. She's also the author of a best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. How are you doing today, Sophia? I'm so good. And I just want to know that, can I put one of the dopest professors in my signature line? Because that's the best intro ever. Please do. I'm going to put it on your LinkedIn as one of your skills. Thank you. Um, so I'm so excited to have you on the show and there's so much that we could get into. Um, one of the questions that I had just starting from kind of like the opening entree of algorithms of oppression is that you talk about one of the limitations of studying the the implications of search is that these technologies are so dynamic and changing and kind of what are the ways in which you've seen it evolve since your book has come out in 2018 um, particularly thinking about this moment when everybody's so reliant and interdependent on digital technologies in order to search and access information? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because one of the most difficult things for those of us who study and research the internet is that it is dynamic. And so um, what I've always tried to do in my own research is kind of capture snapshots or moments in time, and then think about the evolution of those moments. And um, certainly, I'll tell you, when I first started uh, looking closely at Google and the kind of uh, results that were showing up on the first page, which of course, that's the page that matters the most, because most people who use search engines don't go past the first page. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting to see how... Um, there was so much misrepresentation, particularly of vulnerable communities, women and girls of color um, in particular. And, you know, I've watched Google engineers, um, you know, take my book, take other journalists and scholars who've written about Google, uh, almost like a playbook and go through and try to fix everything that we've documented. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, possibility for misrepresentative um, information, misinformation, disinformation to make it to the first page is always there. And, um, you know, Google has a real problem on its hands in particular with YouTube, because YouTube is a place where you find some of the most egregious kinds of um, disinformation, uh, racist, homophobic, hate speech, um, anti-vax, you know, um, COVID disinformation, you know, all kinds of things. So, it's a complex environment, and I think you really hit it uh, on the, the hit the nail on the head, which is that everybody's really reliant upon these technologies that Google's providing, and um, that to me is the most frightening dimension of all of it. Is that we treat Google, a giant advertising company, and its properties that are really about the most titillating and egregious content uh, in order to make a buck. Um, we treat that like 
you know, necessary public information. Um, we we treat the portal like it's going to give us everything we need, and it's just just it just isn't. Um, so that's that to me has been the 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 more things change, the more they stay the same. The results might show up a little bit different here and there, but the entire logic of the system stays the same, and it's a problem. No, for sure. I was thinking about um, yesterday, actually, last night. I mean, this is probably not good viewing before I go to sleep. This is my big problem. Um, but I was watching this documentary on HBO, After Truth, Disinformation, and the Cost of Fake News, and thinking about the InfoWars campaign to say that there was um, a crisis actor that was part of the Sandy Hook school shootings. And mm-hmm. the families just speaking about um, the way in which this was coming up as the first page of the search results. And maybe there's an ability to disprove it now, but what about a hundred years from now? And people are trying to understand what actually happened in that moment. And then Google for all intents and purposes is archiving um, this fake news as reality. Um, and just how, like, what are the implications of that? And so I'm just wondering um, in the time that has elapsed since you wrote this book, how much have you seen like the public understanding of uh, what it means to outsource or, or externalize our knowledge ecosystem onto commercial p- platforms grow? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I'll tell you that about a decade ago, when I started this work, I would present it, I was a graduate student, and I would present it at academic conferences, for example, and people would resoundingly reject the idea that technology could be discriminatory, that the tech itself was loaded with bias, um, racist bias, sexist bias, and so forth. Um, It was just a, it was impossible. It was like an impossible paradigm in certain quarters. I mean, certainly with like the critical science and technology studies or critical information studies scholars, which there's a handful of in the world, you know, they understood like the idea was, um, it was a curious idea for sure, but I was adamant that at the level of code, um, these kinds of uh, decisions were getting implemented in these ways that are really damaging to the to various publics and to society writ large. And you know, fast forward ten years, and I meet people. I kid you not. I met a woman at the shop when I was getting my hair done about three months ago, four months ago. And she was, you know, my girlfriend was like introducing us to each other. And she's like, yeah, Safiya is a scholar at UCLA and she studies, you know, algorithms. And this woman, she goes, oh, you know, those algorithms are a real problems. You know, they could be really racist and sexist. So I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do know that. Um, so a lot has changed in 10 years. And that has, of course, been due to activists and organizers and journalists and scholars, many or most of whom are women, women of color, people of color, LGBTQ communities, um, because we're people who have a, a sensitivity and notice and in quite, you know, we're quite likely to be in the crosshairs of the dis or misinformation. So we see things um, differently. So I would say people definitely understand that the, there's something wrong with the tech. And we were definitely in a full-blown tech kind of tech lash moment before the pandemic. Um, some of the things I worry about, of course, while we're sheltering in place is that people are becoming enamored 
with all kinds of platforms um, again and believing that these are somehow like holding us up or holding up society um, and, you know, are losing their kind of critical thinking about these platforms. So it's, it's interesting to see the paradigm shift in a decade, but there is still a lot of work to do. It's interesting that you bring up the timeline of a decade just because um, I feel like all critical technology or most critical technology books end with a chapter on the solution space. And kind of what I see as your solution space chapter is the future of information technologies, which you kind of open up with this 10-year plan um, from the Federal uh, Communications Commission. I always forget what FCC stands for. Um, Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. Thank you. Um with their 10 year broadband plan, uh, the anniversary of which was uh, right kind of coincided with the shelter in place order due to COVID-19. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of the legacy of that, the impact and kind of how we could see the impact of it and what's going on right now. Yeah, you know, well, you're right. It is the FCC that has kind of been the focal point of attention um, uh, around kind of all things internet, especially with like net neutrality being a huge um, issue, you know, um, fair and equitable access to the internet and to broadband technologies. Um, you know, in the at the end of the book, I really kind of suggest that we also extend our reach and our um, pressure on the Federal Trade Commission, because you know, as you mentioned, there there's so much harm that can come to. Um, you know, in the context of the FTC, you know, they would define us as consumers. Um, we might, I might define us as people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even in the framework of being labeled consumers or thought of as consumers, um, there's a tremendous amount of consumer harm, I think, that happens um, online. And, you know, whether it's people's loss of control over the narratives um, that govern their lives, like, you know, the right to be forgotten, for example, being a, a hugely important kind of legislation that we need to see in the U.S. Um, that really only exists in Europe right now. Um, so, you know, that's something that the Federal Trade Commission could take up in terms of thinking about um, possible consumer harms. Um, you know, there's just a whole host of, um, I'm really sorry, my husband is um filling up the water for some reason while we're <laughs> recording. This is where we're going to have like all the background noise. <laughs> My apologies. Um, but, you know, I think what one of the things that we have to think about is um, what will the interventions be? And in the United States, we really don't have the public policy interventions. And this to me is a place where there's so much um, uh, potential. Um, there's, there's so much kind of restoration and reparation that I believe needs to happen with the um, way that big tech broadly has brought about harms against the public. And um, we need to keep documenting and talking about and bringing forward legal cases to, again, really shift the paradigm powerfully. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. You said they say, would say consumers, you would say people. And also I was thinking like citizens, I mean, it's interesting, like the juxtaposition between broadband being thought of as a public utility um, versus uh, search and these different curation search platforms not being thought of as public interest technology. And I was interested, I feel like the regulatory space for tech is very immature. 
Um, you have somebody yes. like Mark Zuckerberg, this really young cisgendered white male kind of being in charge of a platform. He really doesn't understand. Um, and I was just wondering if you could speak to, do you feel like as we move through this pandemic as portal, as Arundhati Roy said, um, do you just see this kind of digital redlining and things like that being exacerbated or are there things opening up or a groundswell of movements that you can point to that give you some hope in this moment? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, scholars right now who are uh, particularly focused on Section 230 of the Federal Communications um, uh, Commission kind of um, uh, act that governs uh, Internet platforms. And certainly that's a place where people are mobilizing to um, not let big tech companies off the hook by considering themselves, let's say, the kind of the dumb pipes or just the platform where they're not responsible for the content that flows through their platforms. Of course, you know, this has been a huge position of the industry writ large, which is to say we're not responsible for what happens on our platforms. We're just providing the technology because if they um, are considered media companies, uh, media publishers, then they are subject to different kinds of regulatory standards. Um, so this has been a really important place, I think, for um, legal attention. Um, I don't think it's the the whole um, picture. I mean, I think we need tech companies to be held accountable as media companies and held responsible for their content. But what that does is, you know, unfortunately, it still pushes down the treachery of um, the kind of labor, for example, uh, that people have to do in order to keep these platforms safe, you know, safe from um, the commingling of children and adults um, in dangerous ways uh, around like, you know, sexual predators and child sexual exploitation. And of course, we know from the work of people like Sarah Roberts at UCLA um, all about the work that content moderators do in taking down illegal or exploitive content. Um, but, you know, the work that they also do to me around um, viewing um, hate crimes, viewing violence of all, of all types, um, having their own identities and their own psyches harmed. So, you know, even if the, if section 230 to me were expanded to include um, greater accountability on the part of tech companies uh, around their content, how the responsibility for that content gets implemented is quite a whole nother conversation. Um, it also doesn't really challenge the notion that for-profit platforms are, uh, you know, by law required to be profitable, make a profit, prioritize shareholder value. Um, so the question then is really what can the alternatives be? that are public interest um, technologies rather than private interest or commercially interested technologies. And I think this is a place where, um, you know, we, we have a, a more kind of immature or less developed um, tech ecosystem to take up um, different sets of priorities, of course, around citizens, as you mentioned, um, residents, vi visitors, um, you know, to this country and to other countries. And, um, you know, we have not, you know, I think that there's been a huge effort to silence these kinds of conversations and these kinds of investments. I mean, it's shocking to me to see 
um, the National Science Foundation, you know, National Institutes for Health, all of the major federal funding agencies, you know, they have funded the high risk work of these major corporations. Um, and that funding is very difficult to get back into universities, community-based organizations, taxpayer, um, you know, taxpayers who are doing work in the public interest. And so we just need a, a really radical reimagining of these spaces. And um, that would, of course, include the regulatory frameworks of, you know, evaluating whether some of these technologies should even come into existence. And this, to me, is another place where um, I think our um, our federal agencies are, are quite anemic when it comes to uh, thinking about the precautions that should be taken around the making of tech. Thank you. And I think part of that collective reimagining and being inclusive is a lot of people, I think maybe the impacts of algorithms is a growing awareness, but I'm not sure how many people that are outside of the technology field really understand the labor that get, goes into um, the curation and moderation of these different platforms. Could you walk through for our listeners who are not technologists and maybe um, or either in academics in the social sciences or people who are in Rikers or have families in child that are child welfare involved or through the other topics that we've had in the show, kind of walk them through what does search look like right now and kind of what are the different labors and implications involved in that process? Sure. I mean, so one of the things that I think people typically, you know, let's kind of take apart one of the main myths around search engines, which is that the things we find are <clears throat> a matter of what is most popular, what people are searching for the most. This is kind of the prevailing logic in the public um, about search. This, and of course, this is not entirely true because um, it raises two important questions. One is, um, how do people optimize content to make it visible? And the primary way that they do that is through their capital, their advertising dollars, their, their advertising spend in AdWords and wanting to kind of pay the most in a real-time 24 by 7 auction around certain keywords and those being linked up with you, the, your website or your content um, so that it can be visible. So those who pay the most to have their content optimized through AdWords are the most likely to be made visible. So that's an important dimension of kind of how it works. Um, the second mythology I think that people have is that um, Google is actively um, evaluating content to determine what is most credible. And I find people that, you know, um, really invested in this kind of thinking. And on one level, um, if you're looking for things that are banal, like is Starbucks open or where's the closest local coffee shop to me, um, it's going to be fairly reliable. But as soon as you start to ask search engines more complex questions, this is where it falls apart because there may or may not be subject matter experts that are curating, as you say, um, content on the other side. A lot of search is really driven by um, algorithms that are just trying to do kind of pattern recognition. They're trying to see, well, what if, you know, the, the, the algorithm is trying to assess what have people clicked on when these kinds of queries have been asked or similar kinds of queries have been asked in the past. And this is how you um, 
you know, this is where we start to worry because the kind of that kind of behavior by people who use search engines, first of all, is not democratic or fair. Um, and I you know, really try to make this point in the book, for example, if you are a black girl and for years when you search for black girls, the content that comes back is pornography or hypersexualized content, you are a, a very small minority within a minoritized population in the United States. So the whole notion that you would have a democratic or fair control or representation by numbers over your content, um, like compared to, let's say, people looking for pornography that features Black women who are not girls, by the way, um, this means you there's no democracy at play because people who are in minoritized groups will never have the majority um, click power, so to speak. So this is some of the kind of important uh, underpinnings of the logics of how these search engines work. Um, certainly, Google hires um, moderators to make sure that um, illegal content cannot be made visible. So in the U.S. context, that would be child sexual exploitation content, um, you know, egregious content like, you know, snuff videos or, you know, um, violent, you know, video of um, murders or photographs, these kinds of things. Um, it's it, it has people kind of actively screening and also using software to try to detect that content. In other parts of the world, let's say in Germany or France, there will be people and software working together uh, to detect things like, um, you know, Nazi paraphernalia or images or neo-Nazi images, because that's also illegal in other parts of the world. So it really is highly contextualized based on the countries um, where Google does business. But I think that the other less understood dimension um, is that all of that work that's happening between software and human beings in the workforce um, of, of search, which is outsourced in many cases, it's not Google employees, it might be a third party contractors who are doing that work. Um, all of that labor is also feeding back into the machine learning algorithms. And this is really where Google looks to and other companies look to optimize their AI based on all of that kind of human engagement with it too. So this is where um, I think, you know, many of us are trying to raise visibility about what is the data, what is the workflow, what is the information that informs predictive technologies like artificial intelligence, whether it's in a search environment or other environments, um, because every mistake that gets made in those data sets or in that labor that humans are doing and the combination thereof becomes some type of baseline data that optimizes future um, algorithms or AI um, from that work. And so this is one of the reasons why we have to really understand the labor, the software limitations, kind of the whole ecosystem, because it is it's in a feedback loop that then optimizes what's to come next. Uh, your, your book largely talks about uh, Google search, but uh, I was just hoping you would be able to elaborate because you mentioned earlier uh, YouTube. And I think there's been a lot of really great work done recently on, on how it works as kind of like an accelerant towards extremism, right? Like uh, Zainab Tufekhi's work on this subject, among others. 
Uh, and I was just hoping you could maybe characterize to some extent some of the, the similarities and differences um, on how these these processes seem to occur on, on you know, they're products owned by the same company, but uh, kind of functioning to serve up different different mediums, but also audiences to some extent. Yeah, you know, it's different in, in a video um, intensive environment because, you know, think about search. I mean, search is really... Um, the kinds of like pattern recognition work that the AI is doing is mostly textual. I mean, it might bring up websites that have video or audio content, but um, the kind of data mining and text mining and kind of text pattern recognition and optimization is really different um, in a kind of a, in a technical implementation in search than it is in YouTube, which might be, um, which is just quite frankly, very, very difficult to assess. And this is one of the reasons why YouTube is really, can be quite a cesspool because um, YouTube is very reliant upon the community of users to flag content that might be objectionable. And of course, that also means that content that might not be objectionable um, to others get, you know, but to some might also get flagged. So you have you have a, a reliance upon people who might come into contact with video content that's like, you know, hateful or, um, you know, or that's disinformation, you know, anti-vax, let's say. And um, and we report it. And then it goes into a queue and it has to be evaluated. And it's very difficult to uh, have software evaluate the volume of content that comes into YouTube. So for example, um, if I can recall the last stat I heard from a vi vice president um, uh, over at YouTube was, it was something like 400 hours of video content per minute 24 by seven being uploaded to YouTube. So 400 hours a minute of content being uploaded to YouTube. So there's no way that um, AI or software can go through all of that video and determine what's happening in it. So oftentimes there will be things like um, software that's looking for, uh, you know, how many, you know, pixels of flesh, for example, um, and that might signal whether it's pornography or or something um, that might be a violation of the community standards, and that might get kind of automatically taken down. Um, but for the most part, you know, what goes up on YouTube can't really be easily flagged and detected by software. It's very reliant upon human beings and the moderators themselves who do that work, as as we know, um, you know, might have ten seconds to evaluate a, a, a two hour video, who knows? I mean, you know, they're not watching the whole thing. So this makes YouTube a much more difficult environment to manage for Google. And I know that um, they have a lot of people that are working to try to figure out how to um, categorize YouTube content differently, whether there's like kids YouTube or whether they can break news out and make it its kind of own feature. I mean, the feature dimensions of YouTube are incredibly difficult to solve. I mean, search is difficult and YouTube is infinitely more, quite frankly, difficult.
So um, I think something that I appreciated that you really you brought up at the beginning of our conversation was that um, you were starting to see over the past uh, maybe seven years, you were starting to see um, these Google engineers start to use this book and other information like it as a playbook for their work, right? Uh, but you do point out that it is, it's not changing their logic. It is just making kind of these, these micro changes, right? Um, and so with YouTube, it seems like, um, from what you're saying, it's kind of the same thing. Um, they, or you're, they're finding the same issue as long as, as well as um, encountering these technical issues. Um, what are um, maybe some more, I'm just thinking of more possibly radical ways of bringing ethnic studies or bringing scholars into that space? Because it yeah. seems like it's, also very piecemeal the work that they are doing as opposed to making this uh some larger systemic change as to the way that they approach these problems well you know i mean the the radical change to me is that these you know multinational platforms are broken up um maybe dimensions of them can't exist and their entire business model has to be compliant with um, you know, principles that, let's say, don't collapse modern democracies, um, that don't violate our civil and human rights, that don't propagate um, so much disinformation, uh, you know, in, in the form of all kinds of things, whether it's voter suppression in the United States or um, making pathways to legitimate um, ethnic cleansing or genocide. I mean, there's so there, the breadth of problems that are bred in these platforms, um, including social media platforms, is profound. And um, so, you know, to me, the question is, you know, when did we ever say that these institutions now, um, these, you know, private companies uh, ha could have so much social control, so much ability to experiment uh, on populations, you know, where was our consent to that? Um, and I don't want to hear about we we clicked on the terms of service either, because the aggregate impact of these platforms um, is known only by our documenting the egregious impact of these platforms. And of course, that comes at a huge cost. Um, so I think, you know, I, I am hopeful that there will be a um, major paradigm shift in the way that we look at big tech. And by that, I mean the same way the in the United States context, we had a major shift about the way we saw the institution of slavery and the enslavement of people and the occupation of their lands. Um, you know, we, that took a tremendous amount of work. There were people who argued, for example, around slavery that, the American economy could not exist without big cotton and um, enslavement as a, a labor process. It was legitimated in every dimension of society, except for the, the small um, percentage of abolitionists and, of course, the people themselves who were enslaved resisting that. So I think, you know, that required a paradigm shift in order to dismantle. And that, you know, that took hundreds of years to dismantle. I think about other industries like big tobacco, where 
Um, you know, I, I've been telling this joke recently, you know, that, which is really not a joke, it's the truth. Probably when I was delivered, you know, in the 1970s, the doctor probably had a cigarette hanging from his mouth while my mom was pushing me out. My mom herself might have been smoking while she was uh, in labor. I mean, everybody smoked in the 70s and the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was so normalized that there were, um, you know, every attempt by scholars to study the public health impact, the personal health impact, the um, the treachery of the labor conditions, again, that bolstered big tobacco. Um, that took a lot of effort to um, dislodge um, and denaturalize that as a paradigm in the United States. And I think that we are, you know, I mean, I hope my work, I hope my work will lead to the destabilization of big tech as a naturalized phenomenon that, that, um, oh, well, there's all these unintended consequences, but, you know, it's what our whole economy is built on because we've heard those arguments before. And this is why it's so important to hire people with ethnic studies, women's studies, historians, sociologists into the sector, because it might, um, in fact, um, alter the kinds of technologies that emerge. Um, but it also might bring some levity to slowing down or even um, eradicating some of the practices that we have now, um, some of the platforms that we have now. Um, so I think it's really important. I mean, the Band-Aid, maybe the, um, you know, the liberal intervention, incremental in intervention is that we hire more people with knowledge into these companies. But I think the radical intervention is we destabilize the legitimacy of big tech to over-determine what happens in our lives. And when I say over-determine, I mean to not be able to start collecting data on us from the minute we're born to um, develop patterns and predictions about our potential for success in life and the opportunities that should be made available or visible to us because of this kind of data collection. And that that's actually the agenda right now. Um, that is underway fully. And that cannot be, I mean, that is, uh, that is a major uh, focal point in the future of my work is to um, knock down this idea that productive technologies are going to make our lives better when in fact, it's going to, um, you know, take the oppression and discrimination of the past and predict it right into the future and naturalize it and make it very opaque and very difficult to uh, intervene upon. I thought that was a, a, a great answer. I, I thought um, there's, there's a, as I was reading your book, there was a news story that kind of came out, uh, you know, like a day or two ago that some, some former and current Google employees uh, said that Google had um, canceled a, a diversity training and inclusion program because they were concerned with conservative backlash. And it, it just like absolutely cracked me up because it's saying like, oh, these massive opaque large tech companies, they are publicly accountable, but like to whom that public is, is like, uh, <laughs> very problematic and the idea that like if you have enough diversity and inclusion programs that like eventually this will just get solved and go away is is fundamentally misguided 
Yeah, I mean, it's so misguided also the way big tech frames the issues as right and left or diversity versus conservative and um, really flattens the dimensions of what this means. So I was at this, for example, this um, convening of, um, let's call it mid-tier sized tech companies, like at the size of Airbnb, PayPal, those kinds of like, so just kind of just the next layer under the, the big, the big giants. And, um, you know, one of the women who was on this panel, uh, who works for one of these large, large companies, she said, you know, all of the problems that we have are really about like racist, white supremacist, um, complaints and like strategies that are trying to be implemented by people who are like on the far right. Um, she's like, but you know, we don't have those same kinds of issues with people, let's say on the political left, she said, because they're, what they're calling for is greater inclusion of everyone. So it's actually different when one, one set of communities is saying, we need greater inclusion, greater democracy, greater equality um, for all. And the other community is saying just us, white people only. <laughs> so it's like, she's like, that's actually not equal. That's not the same. And I, you know, I was, um, I was chuckling in my seat because this is the way that the discourse gets flattened in these companies so that the values that we're talking about when people say we want diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're talking about for everyone. And that gets, um, again, um, depoliticized or de devalued to other sets of concerns that get labeled conservative that are really about um, a tremendous amount of social control over people who are not, you know, white, middle class, Anglo, Christian people and their values. So, you know, I think um, the fact that Silicon Valley and other Silicon corridors around the world are um, remiss in articulating their own values, their own value propositions, and that they're and and that they keep backstepping away from declaring their commitments to social equality, for example, um, is telling. That is incredibly telling. And you know, it's also weirdly, if you study corporations in the United States, um, most other major Fortune 500 corporations uh, declare things like diversity and equity as core values that they um, that they actively try to pursue because they understand that's in their best business interest. But when you put again people who have a very narrow educational framework from a very narrow set of universities in very narrow sets of engineering disciplines in charge of things, there isn't really a lot of space to understand and nuance what these values are that we're talking about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to me, that's the real travesty. Um, and then you put those people in power and in charge of the world. Wow. I mean, you know, why would we expect to have anything different than what we have? Yeah, wow. I mean, part of what I'm thinking about is how do we conjoin the 
project of radically destabilizing the power of big tech to not just diversity and inclusion of people within these companies to provide better oversight and to study the implications of harm around the deployment of these technologies, but how do we include and conjoin that with um, bringing in black anti-colonial methodologies? How is that, how do you see that as being a part of like reconceptualizing kind of new ways to be online or new technologies? I'm thinking of like Catherine McKitterick, um, Christina Sharp, just what are the ways in which we can kind of have different kind of content management systems, information systems? Do you, are you familiar with McCurtu? Yes. Right. Thinking about that. I'm just, you know, and I'm not sure that that's the, you know, the be all end all, but I'm just also, I feel like as critical technologists, so much space is taken up by having to hold accountable um, the way the things already are, um, that a lot of times we don't have the space to think about what are other ways that we can even define um, what is needed and who are these publics and what is the commons? Well, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, less inclined toward the datafication kinds of interventions that are based on data. I know that there are a lot of people working in like the space of improving systems. Um, I do think that if, you know, for those who are oriented around that, that putting those in the public interest is um, more beneficial. Again, I see that as kind of incrementalist. Um, you know, when we start talking about decolonizing tech, um, and I've written about this, for example, you have to decolonize the entire supply chain. And you've got to start with the Colton miners in the Congo and the incredible exploitation that happens in the blood minerals that are in every single electronic device on the planet. You have to look at the environmental impact of things like e-waste, um, the people who are dying of cancer who work in e-waste centers trying to disassemble electronics and recover um, said gold and copper and other Colton and other kinds of minerals that get used. Um, so if we're going to decolonize tech, then we actually have to get to the material dimensions of the technology, which is really not where a lot of people focus, especially in the United States. I feel like so many scholars are really interested in the, you know, ephemeral or like software or like conceptually what these um, problems are, um, you know, but I think of these things and, you know, I've been writing about how these are material and they, they lay on top of old old colonial patterns of trade and labor exploitation. So um, we've got to unpack that and we've got to think about um, that might be, for example, a radical realtering of what we imagine um, hardware to look like or software to look like um, that's predicated upon fair trade, um, you know, no exploitation, you know, um, I remember seeing some scholars from Australia years ago um, talking about they were studying iPhone, um, you know, workers in China, and they had estimated based on their study of um, visits to the infirmary um, from the manufacturing floor that, um, you know, iPhones were costing about 40,000 fingers 
a year. So let's get into those forms of analyses, right, that help us understand um, whose lives are disposable in exchange for our technology. And again, I think when we put our attention to uncovering and researching and knowing and exposing the health, the psychological, um, the welfare um, of workers, from content moderators to, you know, um, people who work in mines and people who work in factories, then we actually get a really different picture of what the sector is. That isn't our image of white collar workers in Mountain View. And I think that is um, where we can organize, quite frankly, human rights and civil rights campaigns, sovereign rights campaigns in relationship to the sector writ large. And to me, that is the radical reimagining. Now, what it also might mean is that we realize that um, the um, Faustian bargain we've made here with our reliance on big tech is not worth it. And, you know, I often say, for example, to regulators, listen, if you want to regulate big tech, you know, at every dimension that I've already talked about, you can't also simultaneously defund every democratic institution that could serve as a counterweight. So you can't, for example, say, well, we're going to regulate Google, but we're going to also defund public libraries, public schools, public universities, um, you know, education, which is, you know, the, the counterweight to a search engine, quite frankly, in, in, in my mind. I mean, I actually ask my students things like, you know, if you guys be- really believe that um, Google is everything, why did you go to college? Why are you trying to get a degree? Why don't you just search for answers the rest of your life on the job? You don't know? Google it. And then they're like, okay, all right, settle down. <laughs> we get it. You know, but I kind of have to challenge them because... Um, this idea that these technologies, are, you know, are some type of panacea really robs us of the slow, thoughtful processes of um, thinking, connecting, what, imagining what it means to be human, what it means to have um, egalitarian, um, healthy relationships with other human beings at the nation state level and at the interpersonal level. And I think these are the kinds of things I'm really intellectually curious about and, and want to think about with you, um, you know, with, with you three and with others, because these are the, these are interesting questions um, about how we organize our societies. And I think the more and more we're reliant upon um, big tech to organize us, um, the more we put at stake in terms of our humanity. Um, it's a little bit akin to things like, you know, fast food. I think of big tech also like I think of fast food. It's instantaneous. You know, you think it's gratifying. And then next thing you know, like you're having a heart attack. Um, it it puts your health at risk. It, it It's made by, um, you know, companies that aren't necessarily interested in your health and well-being and in your welfare. Um, so, you know, I think of big tech in those ways, like, you know, the slow food movement is really for rich people right now in this country. Um, you know, the organic food movement, um, the slow, the, the, your own victory garden, you know, these things are, um, you know, increasingly becoming 
experiences for the elite and those same people who are um, serving up all this fast food, you know, big tech to us, they've got their nannies signing NDAs that their kids can't have any contact with this technology. They, they forbid their families from partaking. So I find that, you know, again, another interesting data point in these conversations. And um, again, it's about how we frame the problems and the possibilities. Wow. Uh, So you just said so many amazing things. I do first want to acknowledge the, um, the lack of connection that happens with this technology, because all I wanted to do was share my laughter with you as you're scolding your students. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) um, but uh, um, to bring it back a bit. So one of the first things that I wanted to ask about was um, these conversations you're having with your students, the investment that universities have towards changing the system and the fact that you you really bring the context outside of just the software, but into the hardware. And so um, I'm wondering, you did speak that some universities are like trying to include diversity and inclusion, but when you talk to a lot of computer science students, I find that the common complaint is, well, our, um, our computer science curriculum is so... Uh, um, it's so heavy. Uh, our workload is so heavy that we don't really have time to take any ethnic studies or Africana studies courses. And so often is it uh, predominantly white teachers that are teaching these courses, right? So uh, what lens do they really have to um, to change the structure of their course um, to include these topics? But at the end of the day, that's also what we need them to do. So do. I want to ask... Um, I want to ask, what are the uh, the steps that you are seeing being taken by universities that are a bit more radical to um, maybe um, uninvest from these um, manufacturing plants or to, um, I guess, uplift or encourage their professors to uh, use a critical race lens when teaching these computer science courses? It's a great question. All right. So first of all, you know, universities, despite what you hear um, in um, some quarters, are not really like radical institutions. So you're absolutely right that the prevailing logic in computer science and engineering departments around the country is, um, you know, to teach basically theoretical math or applied math. And I think that, um, you know, that that poses a real challenge because the engineering curriculum is really invested in trying to um, prepare people for, uh, you know, jobs at Facebook or jobs at Google. And so they're really um, not leaving a lot of space for, you know, ethnic studies, social science, humanities kinds of uh, coursework. Now, what that means, of course, what's not being named is that um, that might mean you're graduating with a computer science degree from a top university in the United States on your kind of like high school English, right? You you probably AP tested out um, if you're going to a top university. Um, you've AP tested out of a lot of maybe humanities kinds of courses, and um, you might t- not take those at the university, or you might take one or two. So that's a huge problem. I mean, when I think about um, engineers rolling on, you know, 12th grade 
social studies, um, we can double click on that and think about what that, open that up and think about what that means. Um, so certainly, I, I mean, there are places that are trying to take seriously these issues around what they're calling ethics and AI. And, you know, I will say, I find the whole conversation about ethics and AI to be a little bit disingenuous right now because it feels in the major institutions like a bit of an ethics washing kind of effort. Um, so, you know, throwing in an ethics course in a computer science curriculum. You know, at UCLA, I will say I'm, I've been so amazed, you know, with some of my colleagues, um, for example, Professor Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who just won a MacArthur Genius and is um, a you know, woman of color who um, studies million dollar hoods. She basically has studied the way that mass incarceration has been in- incredibly profitable, um, y- the exploitation of, of inner cities and of black and brown people is like extremely profitable. And so she, she has this million dollar hoods project. And one of the things she's doing is bringing in um, black and brown students and community organizers and teaching them data science in these um, summer workshops so that they can go back and um, um, speak back to authorities and institutions that try to use data and data science to dominate them, right? Or to trick them or outsmart them or silence them. And so, you know, those are really interesting kinds of interventions that I find to be amazing to at least people arm people with the knowledge to speak back to, um, and especially community organizers. I mean, there are a number of different kinds of initiatives where we might do something like get, uh, you know, cashless bail implemented on one hand, which is a you know powerful way to, let's say, undo the bail system um, around, uh, you know, people who uh, might have better outcomes or possibilities if they aren't put in jail and they also aren't poor because poor people cannot post a bail. Um, And so they have to languish in jail until they get a court date. And, um, you know, but things like cashless bail then bring up uh, recidivism prediction algorithms, right? And so that's a place where we need higher levels of, um, you know, data literacy, with community organizers to say like, well, is this actually the kind of intervention that we want? Um, so I think, you know, where that, that kind of like radical work happens at the level of community organization. Um, and I, I, you know, I teach these things in my courses, but I'm one person and I know a handful of other people around the country who teach, who use these kinds of models um, to inform our students but it isn't systemic and it isn't, I'm not in a computer science department, right? I'm in an information studies department. And uh, so I think, you know, we need a a massive overhaul and uh, it's going to take a lot of pressure. I think it'll be just like organizing for ethnic studies in universities. We're going to have to organize for these kinds of um, data and information, critical information literacies, um, that they be required and that people not be allowed to graduate without really understanding the role of data and technology in their lives and in society. 
Sophia, thank you so much. I just want to be mindful of time as we're almost at the hour mark. I just wanted to ask if there was any new research or projects that you're working on that you would like to share with our listeners. Well, you know, we're just in the process of trying to um, uh, stand up this UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, and we're going to have a host of projects um, similar to the kinds that I've described here on the show. So I would say, you know, stay in touch with us through the center at UCLA. And um, if people have projects that um, they're interested in us knowing about or that we can amplify, um, we're we're definitely um, interested in knowing. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, So our tradition is it can be related or completely off topic, just something that you're reading or you're listening to. Um, Since I didn't prompt you, I'll share in preparing for today, I thought about um, this book by a former nation reporter, Scott Sherman, Patience and Fortitude, Power, Real Estate, and the Fight to Save a Public Library, about the New York Public Library system kind of from the Andrew Carnegie era to the present. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just something that resonated with me as we were getting ready for today's interview. Um, And if you're ready, you can go next. Well, I am reading um, uh, Charlton McElwain's new book called Black Black Software. And um, I I highly recommend it. I think it's, um, you know, a book that really, again, um, is a powerful counter narrative to the idea that Black people... Um, are digitally divided. It's a really powerful history of um, Black people in technology. And um, also the, you know, um, the relationship between the sector and, you know, mass incarceration, um, the drug wars, the war on drugs, let's say, um, and, you know, uh, the kind of, you know, indiscriminate violence that communities of color have experienced. Um, so I, I think it's a, a cool book. I just started it um, and I, I know him and I, I can highly recommend his work. I love him too. I met him when he did the keynote at NYU um, earlier this year for the AI ethics conference around his book. Yeah, he's really, he's really great. He was in conversation with Ann Washington. Oh, I thought that was great. It was fantastic. Elon, next. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a book this week, but I did want to recommend uh, a new place to buy books that I've recently discovered. Um, We're all stuck at home and trying to read, I think, and that has resulted in me spending more money than I would have liked on Amazon. And I recently discovered this uh, company called, or B Corp, I guess, called bookshop.org. So they distribute earnings through a pooled fund to independent bookstores your local like independent bookstore might have a like digital storefront there. And then the sales they get through there, they get, you know, all of the profits or, or something along those lines. Nice. Oh, Stanley's you. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I'm currently reading a few books at the same time, actually. Uh, one is fatal invention by Dorothy Roberts. Uh, uh, once Khadija told me she was uh, reading that book, I was like, you know what, let me get back to my biotech roots. Um, and she's just brilliant in so many different ways. Uh, along with that, I'm in a book club reading Parable of the Talents. We finished Parable of the Sower last week. And that's just, it's just so telling of what's happening right now. She, Octavia was way ahead of her time. And finally, I'm also reading a collection of stories called Brother to Brother. Um, it's a collection of Black gay texts from different uh, writers, poets from all over the country. And so I just, I was 
not being around other black queer folk, I felt like I needed to just engage with more content and just hear our voices more. So those are the texts that I'm reading right now. Well, thank you, y'all. This is it. Thank you so much, Sophia, for making the time to come on the show. I know I feel like time is like limited and abstract at this point. Um, I know so I, I need really you to come, come to LA and visit us when the shelter in place is lifted because I'm I really love the work that you all are doing and um, I'm just so honored to get to be in conversation with you today. Well, please manifest that. I want to imagine a world where I'm outside of my apartment. I will. <laughs> Um, so please write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. We want your letters, your feedback, um, and listener engagement. Please like and subscribe us on Apple, Spotify, Google, all, where all major podcast platforms are found. Thank you. That's it. Bye.